uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. We grew up watching movies about the robot uprising. Science fiction warned us for decades that the robots were coming and that they'd be smarter, stronger, and faster. Burn-In, a novel of the real robot revolution, is a book about the social upheaval that'll come when automation finally takes over. Set in the near future, Burnin depicts a world where FBI agents work with robot partners, algorithms have replaced lawyers, and terrorists meet up inside a video game to discuss their next target. Burnin looks like a light summer read, but it's filled with footnotes and references like a non-fiction book. Authors August Cole and P.W. Singer call this Thick Int, and see it as a way to envision the future using both fiction and well-researched fact. Cole is a journalist who's covered the defense industry for everyone from NPR to the Wall Street Journal. Singer has worked for the Brookings Institute, the Barack Obama presidential campaign, and more Pentagon-connected think tanks than I can name. Thickent is Cole and Singer's latest attempt to communicate the challenges of the future to both the general public and America's policymakers. Singer is with us today to talk about what it's like to write about the future when you have to cite your sources. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Peter Singer, thank you so much for coming onto the pod. Oh, I appreciate you having me. All right, so the book is Burn In, a novel of the real robotic revolution. What is Burn In about? So Burn In is a new kind of book. It's a smash up of a novel and nonfiction. I know that sounds sort of different, uh, and it is. Uh, so what it is, is it's a um, techno thriller. You follow an FBI agent on the hunt for a terrorist through the streets of a future Washington, D.C., uh, and you follow them uh, to both familiar places, uh, you know, a Starbucks, uh, the, the National Mall, a train station, um, but also to places that a lot of people don't get to go. For example, what is it really like inside the White House Situation Room? But um, through the story, there are actually over 300 explanations and predictions baked into it, replete with the nonfiction research endnotes to show, hey, this is actually from the real world. So the concept of it is that you get you know, a vivid story, you meet some awesome characters, but you also learn about everything from how does AI work to um, what are the planned applications of it uh, by the police, by the military, by restaurants, um, to what are some of the dilemmas that we're all going to be facing? What are the ripple effects that it's going to have on our politics, on our business, um, security, even on our family life? Uh, so, you know, I've been joking that I'm a parent. It's a little bit like sneaking fruit and veggies into the smoothie. Uh, so for some people, it's, you know, they just like the taste. Uh, for other people, it's got some good stuff in there for you. Right. The experience of reading it is, um, it's like you're reading a fiction book. And then every once in a while, there's a little number as if you're reading a nonfiction book that gives you a reference in the back that links to uh, an article, a YouTube video, a scientific article that explains one of the concepts that's appeared in the novel, right? It's kind of how it works. Yeah. And, and the idea is that, you know, for a lot of readers, they'll never go back to those references. They'll just uh, go right through it and and judge it uh, by just um, did it, was it a thrilling read? Did they have fun? Uh, you know, did this character or this moment really speak to them? 
For other people, um, they'll see that number and go, uh, and it might be just the impact of it on the fiction side. Whoa, hold it. That sounded really sci-fi. You mean that's real? Uh, or it might be a moment. Um, so it's not just a, a cool new technology. Uh, it might be a moment. Hold it. That really could happen. Um, and then for other people, they'll put their nonfiction hat on. And uh, besides getting the you know added thrill or chill of that really could happen, um, they may want to learn more about it. And so it gives them a way to find out more about it, just like you would with a regular nonfiction book. Um, and for us, the idea of it came out of actually the impact that our last book had had. You know, I've done a, a series of nonfiction books, um, you know, on everything from cybersecurity uh, to a book looking at the, the rise of the very first private military companies, the Blackwaters of the world. Um, but it was the book that August Cole, my co-author on this, um, that we did together called Ghost Fleet that came out um, several years back. It was a novel. Um, it was a novel that imagined what a World War III might look like, what a war between the U.S. and China might look like. Um, and you know, we wrote it originally basically trying to give people the experience uh, that we'd had as kids, uh, you know, enjoying early Tom Clancy, uh, reading Red Storm Rising in uh, the back of my mom's station wagon on the way to summer beach vacation. Um, you know, I'm dating myself by not just the, the book, but revealing, you know, that was when we didn't have to wear seatbelts. Um, but uh, the point was, you know, we wrote it for people to, you know, enjoy, have that same kind of um, enjoyment that we had had. But it struck a chord, not just for Summer Beach Read, but it actually ended up having greater impact on the real world than my nonfiction books it had. Um, so we were asked to brief its real world lessons everywhere from the White House Situation Room to the tank, which is the uh, conference room that the Joint Chiefs meet in inside the Pentagon, to um, military units like uh, 82nd Airborne, JSOC, the team that got bin Laden. Um, the Navy even named a $3.6 billion program Ghost Fleet. Um, and so we were struck by that and said, okay, can we do that kind of dual approach with this new book? Um, we've got a story idea, we've got characters that we think are going to be really exciting, but can we also mix into it uh, some issues that are important, some lessons that people are going to need, um, but do it in a way that isn't going to um, lose them? Uh, kind of another way of thinking about it is no one ever said, um, man, this is such a great PowerPoint. You ought to read it too by the pool. Uh, no one ever said, you know, man, this academic white paper, wow, it kept me up late last night. I just couldn't put it down. Um, you don't have that. But they do say that about novels. They do say that about, you know, this character. I, man, I really loved him or really hated them. Um, I think about them. Uh, there's there's a writer who has described this as um, one of the powers that, that, that fiction has is that it's like planting a seed inside someone's brain so that what our concept is, you can get that, but isn't even better if the seed that's planted is pulled a little bit from the real world. I will give us some of these reference points. I'm, I'm interested in what you and Cole were concerned about. The, the subtitle of the book is A Novel of the Real Robotic Revolution. So we're looking at, this is a book set in the future, but I would say it's like what, uh, how far into the future would you say? 
So uh, this is one of the little tricks of the trade. Uh, we don't put a specific date on it because um, very quickly uh, you would have people sort of pinging off of that and maybe losing people. And then you get the problem of, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001. Um, you know, it didn't happen in 2001. So um, it, but let's just say, uh, let me put it a different way. The rule of doing this that we followed, um, and we call it useful fiction, um, mm -hmm. is uh, that um, it has to be set in the real world, real world places. So real world locales in Washington, D.C. area um, has to be pulled from the real world, as I mentioned, real world research. Uh, and um, that also means that there's no um, what we call vaporware, any technology in it, um, no matter how crazy sci-fi it sounds, actually has to already exist in the real world or be at prototype stage in some lab somewhere. Um, it also means uh, real world um, humans and dilemmas in it. Uh, the different way of putting this, you know, the military people would describe this as a lesson from um, Clausewitz that uh, you have the fog of war, you have the friction. Um, so yes, you've got your plans, you've got your cool new tech that you want to use, but there's a bad guy who might go after the vulnerability in that tech. And oh, by the way, going back to the real world side, um, the way they go after it has already been shown in the real world. Um, it's already been done somewhere else or shown off at a hacker convention. So, you know, to, to the point, you can illustrate that in, um, in two different ways. It might be a certain, let's say, technology. Um, and, you know, maybe it's just a detail in a scene. Two characters are talking and um, overhead a um, certain type of uh, delivery drone flies by. We then will have a little number, as you mentioned, a little endnote that if you want, you can go look at and it'll show, hey, that's not what the authors dreamed up. Here's Amazon's patent for it. This is what Amazon's really going to implement uh, in the coming years. Or it might be a, a bigger issue or concept. Uh, so an example of this is um, algorithmic bias, which is this, you know pretty complex uh, idea of how AIs can um, how AI can end up um, unintentionally uh, delivering a biased outcome or recommendation. Uh, because it's been trained poorly, because it has bad data. Um, now, I would say that that, that specifically uh, kind of the biases of AI uh, that are built in by the people that create them uh, is one of the major themes of the book. It's something that the plot kind of turns around, right? Yeah, and, and so it's this issue that um, it affects um, or will soon affect literally everyone. Uh, and, you know, one of the fun things about the book has been, um, as you and I are talking, it, it's not yet out. It's it's about a week away, but I've already been, you know, back to this idea of policy side, doing um, briefings uh, on the real world lessons for it, for groups that range from um, U.S. Air Force to uh, tech executives, uh, to a group of lawyers, you name it. Um, and each of them are starting to see this, this complex idea of algorithmic bias play out, you know, in the, in the military, it's how does it affect your targeting? Um, in uh, banking, it's, they had a case of, um, they were using an AI to screen who should get loans or not. And the AI turned out to be racist. Uh, it was screening out African-Americans. Now, no one told it to be racist, 
but um, it was this this inadvertent outcome. So you know issues that it, it affects you as as a as a driver. There's AI um, bias issues that um, affect your car. It affects education of your kids. You name it. It's a big important issue. Going to be even more important. So again, most people are not going to read a study of it. The way we depict it is a scene in the book where um, the character, our FBI agent, is trying to pick a bad guy out of a crowd at a train station. Very quickly, you know, your mind can can visualize this. And so you follow him through this kind of, you know, cool scene. And there's a credible, there's a credible bomb threat. Yeah, yeah. At Union Station. Yeah, there's a bomb threat at a train station. And um, they're trying to figure out, you know, where's the bomb? Who's the bad guy? You know, very quickly you can kind of feel your heart racing just a little bit more at that. You can put yourself in the position of, you know, trying to figure out of all these different faces in the crowd. And but then we through that scene get to see everything from, you know, the tech that looms Um Here's what face recognition software is going to be able to do. Uh, here's what augmented reality uh, advertisements are going to look like. Uh, but, oh, by the way, here's the issues that you're going to be dealing with in that world. Um, everything from, uh, you know, yeah, you may have um, uh, face recognition software. You're still going to have um, homeless uh, and inequality uh, and um you also have the problem of info overload. Uh, so our characters getting all of this data, but how do they deal with it? And then also the concern of um, is the data biased or not? So the point is, by the end of that scene, you know, hopefully you've gotten sort of a cool experience. You know, did they find the bad guy in the crowd? But you also walk away from it getting exposure to all of these concepts that, again, are going to apply whether you work in business, whether you work in the government, whether you're a parent. Uh, and so that's hopefully kind of the, 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 the utility of the blend. The, I think this scene is very important. It happens very early on. I'm going to spoil just a little bit. Of yeah. It. I, I deliberately chose that scene because I didn't want to plot spoil, uh, you know, all the other big stuff. It, it's uh, one, of, one of the things when you talk with authors, you'll find they almost always just talk about the little beginning things in the book because they're um, and the difference. That's the difference with nonfiction, you know, in nonfiction, you do the you know bottom line up front. Whereas in fiction, right. you're like, I don't want to reveal. But um, so Keegan, the the FBI agent who's in Union Union Station has AR goggles on uh, or AR glasses on and, it, and is kind of like you said an information overload and it is only when she sets those glasses aside and kind of cut you know puts all pushes all the data out and is able to look at things without this information stream coming in that she's able to identify the bad guy right. Um, so one of the themes of the book that I think is very interesting is there was up until very recently, I think, this kind of push that more data, more technology, all of this stuff is going to save us. Uh, you know, robots and AI, all of these things are going to make life easier and better unequivocally. Um, and what we found, obviously, is that it just it changes things. It creates different sets of problems, right? And I would say that one of the themes of the book is kind of ne negotiating our relationship with these technologies um, and beginning to realize that they are not all created equally and more importantly, not all distributed equally, correct? Yes. Oh man, you've, you've pulled out uh, 
so many of the key themes in it. Uh, it's it's really great to you know sort of hear that they resonated in that way again through the idea of a novel. Um, so one is uh, the fine line in the real world between our visions of technology utopia and dystopia um and how in many ways it sort of depends on uh where you are in society as to how you feel whether it's a you know utopian or dystopian view and i think we all kind of you know are experiencing that uh whether it's you know the the grand promises of uh silicon valley and it's going to cause all this wonderful stuff and it does but it also leaves us with a little bit of a, a creep factor, right? Uh, and you, you know, whether we're talking about, um, let's use an example, face recognition software. Face recognition software is um, being deployed out by, you know, everything from the military to use for targeting, by police forces uh, in pretty much every major city, uh, to um, companies that range from retail stores to. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, even um, had a project looking at deploying face recognition. Um, so, you know, it's going to cause for some situations greater security. Um, it's going to be used to uh, identify customers and ensure that the transaction's right, to steer you things that your data trail shows that you want. But oh, by the way, it also feels like, you know, Big Brother, in the case of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Big Colonel watching you, right? Um, and uh, so one is this, this you know, you're going to get the technology. Uh, it's coming in either case, but there's a fine line between the dystopian or the utopian views of it. Um, and again, uh, that's for every technology. Another part of it that hits is um, you mentioned that that uneven distribution. And what's so cool about you saying that is that's, you know, uh, a riff off of the sci-fi writer, William Gibson's idea that, you know, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so what we we play with that um, out into this real world um, in that uh, you will have uh, an uneven distribution of the technology. Um, you will have some people with the latest new awesome gear and you'll have other people with the earlier generation. You have uneven distribution in terms of the um, types of robotic systems that are going to be out there. So much of sci-fi, you know, talks about it as just like there's one type of robot. Um, and instead, you know, you'll have everything from little teeny tiny um, uh, ones to uh, ones where the human's riding in the, the system, the, the way the driverless cars are playing out, where it's not doing everything on your own. You're still sitting behind the wheel. You're taking over sometimes when it's not. Then you'll have other ones that are working as um, uh, maybe even a partner. Uh, and so that unevenness, you know, creates, uh, again, I think more the real way that it's going to happen. Um, it also shows how we have an unevenness of inequality. Um, you'll have different uh, income levels uh, in the future. But then um, the final thing that comes out of it is that theme that you mentioned of really it's about navigating it all. And much of the question of navigating it is, a question of what is that human machine relationship look like, whether it's for the police officer, whether it's for the parent, whether it's for the criminal, whether it's for the business, um, and how does that relationship affect the human in the part of it, uh, which you know is a story that that gets left out of whether it's the 
consistent sci-fi idea of, you know, no, the robots are going to rise up and kill us all. Um, or, you know, all the new economic plans for deploying these technologies in the real world. Yeah, we, it's funny. Uh, real is italicized in the uh, in the subtitle, right? A novel of the real robotic revolution. Um, and it's, I think, because this is a book that looks at machine learning and artificial intelligence and robots. Um, and it is not just The Matrix or iRobot. It's more nuanced and strange. Um, it's there, there's a, there's a social upheaval that is coming and is kind of, it is the beginnings of, and parts of are depicted in this novel, um, that I think are going to affect jobs that people aren't expecting. Uh, just like we talk about Keegan's home wife, the FBI agent. Um, I think about her husband who was a big shot. Uh, I can't remember he was a lawyer, but I can't remember exactly He's which. He's a contract lawyer. Contract uh, lawyer. Yeah. In yeah. a job that essentially has now been obliterated by artificial intelligence. Yeah. So it's funny when it's part of the the, the concept is um, we're on the exact 100-year anniversary of the creation of the word robot. Uh, it was created for a play um, called R-U-R. And the word was taken from an uh, older Czech word uh, for servitude or surf. And um, the characters in that play, the robots, were mechanical servants that wise up and then rise up. And ever since that idea of a robot revolt has cut through all of our science fiction. You know, you mentioned the Terminators and the Matrixes, and it's also affected kind of the way we think about it in the in the real world. Um, you know, you see these debates about killer robots and existential threats and the like. And um, the real in, in, in our subtitle is not just, hey, we're pulling from the real world and we've got the end notes to prove it, uh, but also that what's really playing out um, at least in your and my lifetime, is um, not when do we suit the, salute the metal masters. Uh, it's how do we navigate an industrial revolution? Um, a, we see a rewiring of the economy all around us, and a result, everything that pulls from the economy, you know, the politics, the society, um, and uh, it hits all sorts of different areas. Um, we actually gathered uh, every single job automation report that we could find. Um, you know, everything from World Bank to McKinsey, all of these different studies about uh, what AI and automation can do to different professions. Um, Oxford University, for example, looked at 702 different occupations and found that um, 47% of them are, uh, 47, sorry, not occupation, but 47% of the jobs in the US are going to face um, replacement or displacement or reduction over the next 20 years. Um, and that's a high end. There's a low end estimate of 9% uh, coming out of OECD, whichever study you care about, 9% is still a lot. Um, and so the point is that we already can start to feel this. We're going through uh, a transition period um, and, you know, it's hit some areas already, uh, factory worker. Um, you know, you look backwards, uh, every new robot introduced onto the assembly line um, has been 3.3 human workers uh, taken off. Um, but it's also going to hit, moving forward, all sorts of other areas. And we pulled that example of contract lawyer. Um, now, what's 
great about the fiction side of this is you've got all these data, you got all these Excel spreadsheets and estimates and numbers and the like. You can play it out though through the experience of that character and it mm-hmm. weirdly becomes real in a different kind of way because now we see, okay, what does it mean for that character to have you know done everything the right way, got good grades, got a good, really well-paying job, and then they lose it. And now he's doing um, gig work remotely from home and it's having an effect on his marriage on the way that he parents, but also the way he sees politically. You describe describe the nature of that gig work because I think it, it's very interesting and prescient. Exactly well, what it, he's doing. It's actually pulled from um, what we already see of you know sort of the combination of how um, Uber driver wor- wor- market works to um, the Amazon Turker uh, market. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so you have that, um, and again, it hits this you know. Uh, utopian or dystopian um the concept of gig work some people think it's awesome you get um and it was sold as this you know you get the freedom to work when you want um uh it's a marketplace etc cetera, etc cetera. uh the uberization of it's going to be awesome but then you also look and see uh actually it creates a massive amount of um uncertainty because it's not a consistent income um it uh creates um sort of a, a hamster wheel chasing. Uh, you're always chasing after the next one. Um, layered into this is also something else that some of the big tech companies have done where it's gamified. Uh, and by that, I'm not saying you play video games. It's um, the idea that it's not just a straight wage that you get, but you get um, ratings and points. And then those points and ratings yield real rewards. And so um, you get this sort of, uh, it's a perfectly designed system to put the person kind of on the hamster wheel where they're always chasing the next thing. Um, and, you know, we we see this in the real world, the the Uber drivers who, you know, sleep in their cars. Um, you know, it, 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 it's actually not as great for the, you know, it's not better than the life of a taxi driver. It's sometimes in ways worse. Um, but this aspect of doing it from home remotely, um, we're all experiencing right now, mm-hmm. uh, where it's not just the hamster wheel part for the, the you know, sort of the, 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 the gig work side, it's the remote work side. And how does that affect, you know, wow, it's great to be working from home. Well, uh, everybody who's listening to this, who's working from home is starting to go, eh, actually not. Um, and you know, it affects your marriage. It affects the way you parent. Um, and so what I'm getting at is you get to see that through the, the experience of the character and, um, it makes it feel, uh, to me and I hope the reader more real, but also raises these kind of questions. So you get these, you know, the book has these, you know, big Hollywood scenes of, you know, stuff blowing up and, and, you know, really big moments, but you also have these small moments, the argument that he has with his wife that, maybe hit you more. Yeah, I would. I mean, that that scene, the very first scene with them, when he when she comes home and she's had a bad day and needs to talk to him, but he's got VR goggles on and is essentially like grinding uh, being a remote assistant to elderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, just then they've gamified providing comfort to the old and dying, essentially. Um and he's trying to get the bonus points to get the $600 for their for their prime for that month. Um, 
and is doing Delauded just to kind of keep up with the stress of that lifestyle uh, was very, I think was very, one of my favorite moments in the book, especially early on. Um, there's two other kind of characters that I want to hit and I want to make sure we talk about uh, is this is kind of, it's kind of like a classic uh, buddy cop setup mm. in a way. Uh, Cause Keegan's the FBI agent. And I would say like one of the main plot points of the book is that she is, uh, assigned or, or she's kind of pressured into accepting an assignment where she is partnered with a robot for the first time uh, in the F in FBI history. Um, and it is about, can a robot do uh, an FBI agent's job and how well and what is it like? So tell us about Tams. Um, if you could describe Tams physically for us, I think that's very interesting. Um, and then kind of what they are like how they function because they're pretty different from other robots that you would think of in fiction especially mm -hmm. like robot cops so um you hit it exactly you've got that sort of buddy cop uh, uh element to it um you know experienced cop assigned rookie you know it's a you can think of all the the great movies we we love out of that um, just in this case, we have, you know, what looms, which is that, uh, the partnership, uh, and again, you know, it's not super sci-fi, but the idea that real world humans are starting to be paired up and aided by machines. So TAMS, um, it's short, uh, it's, uh, you know, everything in government is, um, has an acronym, Tactical Autonomous Mobility System, TAMS. Um, and TAMS is basically, uh, take the combination of what you are seeing on the physical side of robotics, um, you know, so think of the, a lot of people probably seen the, you know, wild YouTube videos of the Boston Dynamics um, robotics, you know, doing parkour or whatever. There's lots of different types of that. Um, maybe it might be a really cool hand system. Basically take that and say, okay, if that was possible in um, 20, you know, if you're thinking about some of the, the, the videos that have gone most viral in 2017, what's going to be possible, let's move the dial 10 years forward. So on the physical side, it's a, um, TAMS is a humanoid form robot. Um, yes, you've got robotic cars. Yes, you've got, uh, you know, delivery drones, but you also will have some because of the very nature of helping people and navigating the world that will have a human form, you know, two arms, two legs, a head, but it's gonna reflect the way that real world robots is going. Um, so there are subtle changes that will allow it to have greater stability when it walks or the face, um, you know, this is not a robot that you would ever figure out, uh, that would, you would ever go, oh no, it's not a robot. It's, um, the, the facial expressions, uh, it's, uh, a, a Japanese no mask is sort of blank so that people, um, put our own emotions on top of it. It's I, I love she tells it to, um, at one point she tells it to stop. It kind of does these little, it has these little body movements it does that kind of indicate some sort of emotion or an emotionality. And she tells it to stop doing that. Yeah. So it's doing, and, and this goes to the software side, which is the real part of it is that TAMS is basically take um, all the decision aids around you, uh, whether it's your Siri, whether it's your Alexa, whether it's the ones that military now have in their operation centers um, and just like the hardware, move the software uh, forward. And also equally the ways that are designed into that we um, communicate and relate to our systems. Um, so, you know, there's there's some of these like physical tells that they use to, to 
for us to notice. Other times it's um, uh, a verbal thing. And um, one of the, you know, reveals, I think, more about Keegan than about Tams of kind of her character mm-hmm. um, as uh, the first time she meet it, meets it and um, it speaks to her in a um, slightly female voice, like, you know, Alexa does or Siri does. And she's like, screw that. No, 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 reprogram. Like, uh, you know, we're not, and, um, and, and what it gets at is one, it gives you a hint of kind of Keegan as a character. Um, this is a, I believe a rarity in the, in the techno thriller field. Um, it's a female character. It's the central character. You know, if you think about a lot of the, the, the novels and movies out there, when there is a female character, they're the one B, they're the helper to the, to the male. Um, and also Keegan, you know, you mentioned that scene, like where she's outside her, uh, condo. Um, part of that scene is her wrestling with all of her different identities. Um, she's got her work identity, but she's also coming from work and she's got to go home. And your home identity is your mix of there's, there's your spouse. Um, and what if it's a rocky relationship, but there's also, there's your, um, your parent, you're, you're a parent, your kid. Um, and so kind of which game face do you put on? And what I'm getting at is that she's a really complex character. Uh, I think a, a more realized character, but again, she's, she's, you know, this, this moment where she's like, no, 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 we're not going to do this, this bull crap of, um, you using a female voice with me because we've got gender stereotyping, you know, on the way that we use our, our mechanical servants. Uh-uh. Um, it gives you a hint of kind of who she is, but it also flex it, you know, without ever going deep in it to making you think about, hold it, the way that we, our robots communicate to us are really about all the ways us putting our human imprinting on it. And the final thing about Tams that's, um, kind of neat is that you and I, and Keegan and the reader are all thinking about it as a character, mm-hmm. but we never actually do or say that. It's uh, it just operates the way that again the robot would. It speaks the way your Siri or your Alexa does, and yet all of us, whether it's um, the reader to the characters in the story. To us in the real world, we can't help ourselves. And that's, again, a really interesting thing um, that matters in the real world, To It's just so cool to play with in a fiction sense. I want to talk about, before before we let you go, I want to hit on your antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that uh, as the book goes on, more is revealed about their backstory. So I don't want to get too deep into it, but I do kind of want to set it, set them up because I think, I think it's important. I think it's interesting. And I think it's, it reflects problems that we're going to deal with uh, very, very soon. Um, what can you tell us about them? I guess, without giving away, uh, giving away everything. I, I will yeah. say one of my, again, one of my favorite scenes early on is uh, they have a meeting with other members of what I would call their cell, their terrorist cell that takes place in a, uh, it's not Fortnite for obvious reasons, but it's a Fortnite style game <laughs> that they are, they are meeting in, uh, which I think watching the news stories lately about people having business meetings in Red Dead Redemption 2 and, and, and <laughs> conferences in Animal Crossing, like, Okay, well, yeah, I mean, obvious choice <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because um, sometimes, you know, when you do these briefs for, uh, you know, whatever intelligence community, real world said, they're like, you know, could that actually happen? And you're like, um, not only can it happen, it's 
already happened. It uh, happened yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Well, and not just you know the the joke of you know what you were saying like the business meetings. We've seen ISIS do similar on the video gaming platform mm-hmm. side. Um, but uh, so without revealing too much, um, uh, the we have a dastardly bad guy, as every story actually has to have. Um, but uh, a couple of things I hope like the the hero character that are a little bit different about them is that um, first, the ideology, what's motivating them, um, they, uh, it, it's not the villain who, you know, pulls at their mustache. It's actually an ideology that I think a lot of people might find, um, might understand in a certain way. Um, sort of the sense that the world is moving too fast around us. And a little bit of what we were just talking about of like what you're saying is utopian. That's actually dystopian and we need to stop it. The second thing is, you know, I will reveal this because I think it, it reflects another sort of real world lesson is that, you know, as you, because you said there, there's a cell, there's a meeting in this place, but it's also about the people that are coming together that um, it's a, a strange kind of coalition where mm-hmm. there are groups that have, um, seemingly wildly different beliefs, but yet they're all kind of coming together because they all are sort of uh, against the same thing. And oh, by the way, we've seen, you know, real world examples of that literally right now in the middle of the, uh, you know, look at the the protests that happened um, in Huntington Beach in, in, in California. You had surfers and far-right extremists and anti-vaxxers and vegans um all gathering, you know, totally different ideologies, but all gathering because they were sort of angry about the same thing. The final thing, though, that stands out about our bad guy, and again, going back to this pulling from the real world side, but I think giving it greater um, thrills and chills for the the fiction side, is that um, they're a new kind of, uh, I'll say terrorist, because they have powers created by uh, the change in the internet to the internet of things. So um, they are able to carry out attacks that wouldn't have been possible in the past, but are increasingly possible now. And it might be individual level crimes, um, do, killing someone in their smart home, never stepping inside the smart home. Um, or it might be something at scale. Uh, I'll plot spoil a little bit here. Um maybe uh, someone recreating versions of the biblical 10 plagues, but through cyber means, wow, that could never happen. Well, I got the, the end notes to show it. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and so that uh, again, it, I think it gives, you know, hopefully the, the scale, the interest, but, you know, one of the differences of um, I go back to that notion of useful fiction is that, you know, for some people, it's going to be the entertainment. The useful side for some parts might be predictive. Oh man, that's coming. That's cool. I need to understand it. In other ways, it might be preventative. Uh, Ooh, that's a nightmare scenario. Okay, here's what we can do to make sure that doesn't come true. Would you say it's fair to call them uh, a neo-Luddite with the caveat that we have a poor understanding of that historical movement? Absolutely. The term Absolutely. has come to mean something that it doesn't quite reflect the reality. Yeah, and I think it actually goes back to this notion of going through um, an industrial revolution. Uh, right. When you get, um, 
you know, massive change. Uh, you get economic winners and losers. You know, the last industrial revolution had, you know, winners on the, and losers on the individual level, on regional level, different industries did better or worse, even different nations did better and worse. And then that ripples out to, you know, affect everything from uh, what industry looks like to it changes politics. And again, you get good and bad things. I need to be 100% clear about this. Um, you know, the last industrial revolution, uh, you get um, political movements like uh, no industrial revolution. There's no such thing as children's rights. There's no such thing as women's rights. There's no such thing as workers' rights. There's certain holidays. There's no Labor Day, right? Yeah, but um, a whole lot of people had to get their hands mangled in looms for all of that stuff. Bingo. So you get that. You get the bad side too, right? You get uh, you get displacement, people out of work. You get other ideologies that are maybe not so good, uh, not just maybe. You get communism and fascism coming out of the uh, Industrial Revolution. And we spend the next 100 years kind of working its way out. So similar kind of you know trend we can feel around us. We can feel good and bad aspects coming out of it. We can feel sort of rifts on the old politics. And one of the things that you – so you mentioned the, the Luddites. The Luddites were actually um, – we would now call them a terrorist movement uh, or an insurgency. They were um, mostly the sort of craftsmen who had been put out of work by the very first factories in um, England. And so they tried to stop the future by um, they would assassinate factory owners. They would go in and smash up the early factories. They would hold these marches that would turn into pitched street battles and the scale of it was such, um, it sort of puts our, uh, us Americans in our place. In, in 1814, more of the British army was deployed to put down the Luddites than was deployed to fight the American army in the War of 1812. So when they were doing their strategic calculus of where do we send our troops, they said Luddites are a bigger problem than those Americans are. And so, you know, I think we can, we can, again, looking forward, say, okay, we're starting to see, you know, strange groups come together, mostly just in their anger. Um, we're starting to see people who are saying, maybe the future is moving too fast. Um, and, but also a little bit like, you know, the way bin Laden wanted to take us back to the 600s, but he wore a Timex and he used, you know, a 747. Um the he same had Animal thing. Crossing on his saved on his GameCube. Yeah, um, the same thing. You know, the the people who may want to fight the future are actually going to be using all of these tools that are out there for all of us as well. Um, you know, so and we again, I don't have to use the the fiction of the book. Um, drones have been used by governments. They've been used by police. They've also been used by criminals um, uh, to drug smuggle. They've been used by terrorist groups to carry out their own drone strikes. Um, so again, you know, every technology has a good and bad side. Um, what we do is say, okay, let's move the dial forward. Let's play that out, um, but play it out, uh, you know, not in a galaxy far, far away, not in a, a future, you know, a hundred years from now, let's play it out. And what lies just when we, you know, open that next door. Uh, all right. So, all right, tell, so tell me about, about some of the research, research you did around cybersecurity. Um, one, one of the fun, fun things of like the, what, what we discovered, um, uh, you know, the vulnerabilities in the DC systems, systems they're, they're real. real. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the research for the book, 
unveiled all of this amazing, um, uh, not just what was possible in cyber threats, but uh, just layers of cybersecurity vulnerabilities that uh, boggle the mind. And by that, I mean, there's there's some stuff that, and people working in cybersecurity, you know, they there's reports uh, where you will um, re- reveal a certain vulnerability. Uh, and we, we play with those in the book. Um, and, you know, it might be vulnerabilities in water treatment systems uh, or transportation networks. And so sometimes it's, it's from a vulnerability report. Other times it's what someone shown off at a hacker convention. Other times it might be a certain kind of um, hack that's, that's already happened just somewhere else. So uh, one of the things that in the story happens in Washington, D.C. actually recently happened to um, Israeli water treatment systems in the real world. Um, but there's also what happens when you talk to people and the stuff that they uh, tell you, you know, uh, over beers or whatnot that they they wouldn't publish. And uh, one of the sc- scariest, kind of funniest moments for me was um, uh, interviewing someone who worked on uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, water systems. And he talked about how there were, uh, in particular, um, four, uh, we'll call them valves, uh, that would, um, if you could flip them, that you could uh, flood uh, major parts of the city and its infrastructure. And his wife was actually uh, there in the background and she yells out, you don't know him all that well. Don't tell him which four. <laughs> and, you know, so we, and we don't have, uh, of course, which four in the store of the light. But uh, it's sort of this funny moment of just, you know, uh, the behind the scenes of the research, but also just, wow, oh, my goodness, we got to fix that. Uh, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> I think that's a good spot to end. Peter Singer, thank you for coming on to Cyber. The book is Burn In, a novel of the real robotic revolution. Thanks so much for having me. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Jason, we have, a, we have a guest this week. Yeah, Gita, hi. Hi, I'm here. My name's Gita. Gita, welcome to Cypher, the, 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 the roundup version of our show, Cyber, where you're going to tell us about your, your amazing work in the last few weeks. Yeah, so Gita, Gita Jackson, who are you? I'm Gita Jackson. I'm staff writer at Motherboard and also uh, for Vice Gaming. I sort of straddle the two, the two sections. Um, I used to work at Kotaku, and then I applied for a job here, and I got it. Now I work here, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, we love to have you here. Is it is it Canadian of me to say that I called it Kotaku? It is a little bit. It's the it's a eh, a sound. Americans, unless they're from specific parts of New England, don't really say that. Or very, you know, parts of the, America that are really really close, like kissing the border. I think in Buffalo, 
the eh sound is more common. Right. You should you should uh, you should have heard me like five years ago. My Canadian oh my accent God. was even was even thicker. It's I mean, it's amazing how much Degrassi I've watched that I can identify this so so quickly, you know? Cyber is now a linguistics podcast. I'm into it. <laughs> So, Gita, a lot of people were telling me about this story who weren't necessarily in the Vice universe or don't normally read Vice, but they were telling me how the story was just such a perfect embodiment of what's going on today. And I, I loved it because it sort of made me rethink about past periods of history that look cool and sound cool, but in fact are extremely hard and very difficult to go through and, and you know, important. Anyways... I want to hear from you. Tell me, tell me about the story you wrote. So, the cool zone comes from this tweet from this guy named Shanar Moorhead, who is a really, really kind person. Actually, uh, after the article went up, we ended up talking to each other. Uh, I didn't reach out to him for comment because the the tweet has like multiple thousands of retweets. Um, and it turns out, like his relationship to that tweet is like a little bit. I don't know. He's not sure about it really, um, but because. The calling something cool that is so terrifying to live through and like very violent and has like actual human life and death in the balance can feel flippant. But I, what I was trying to express in the article is that these moments where the world seems like it's in such a moment of upheaval and there's no historical model to follow to understand how things might shake out. That means anything is possible, not just the bad stuff anymore. We've seen some actual real gains. Like the NYPD, like, dissolved their Planko's cops unit, which is means, I mean, it's not a huge gain, but that feels incredible to me. And that is the kind of thing that is only possible in the cool zone. Can you name some like other potential periods of history that that are the cool zone just for for reference for people who are not super sure what the cool zone is? Yeah, so um I used to read about punk rockers in 77 living in New York and thinking think about, "Oh, I'd love to live there at that time. That would be so cool." Probably not. Probably the 70s in New York was actually very dangerous and not fun to live in. That's a cool zone. That's a classic cool zone. And those people making those music, they were really, really poor and discriminated against and very angry and living through a political time that was really like subjugating marginalized people quite a bit. As much as fun it is to think about, oh, get in the van and like the DC hardcore scene, you wouldn't have wanted to live through that cool zone. That wouldn't have been very cool. Even further back... Um, I know a lot of people in my high school all got really obsessed with the French Revolution, thinking it was so cool to read about. Very, very cool to read about. They beheaded people, <laughs> you know? They chopped people's heads off. <laughs> totally. I was thinking about that. I'm like, I, I remember how I used to think the French Revolution was cool. And then I remember I read a first-person account of like what they actually did to Marie Antoinette's head. And I was like, huh. Yeah. yeah I think, Not uh, that chill. <laughs> I think I'm good. I think I'm good with <laughs> yeah. never going back to that point in history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to think my dad grew up in uh, Selma, Alabama, and the uh, during the civil rights movement, he was a teenager. Um, and I used to think about what he did and how he acted with such admiration. And now I'm like in a very similar situation, and I understand that it comes from a place of necessity and a little bit of a place of fear. But 
because it's all so intense and it's all happening at once and it seems like the momentum is inevitable, it also feels like if I just take these steps, if I keep pushing, I can actually achieve the thing that I want to achieve. Unlike most periods of human history where like most marginalized people, you know, black people, poor people, LGBTQ people, they're just ground to the dirt forever. Right. Yes. And it's like, uh, you know, obviously the first civil rights movement, very not cool to live through. Um, but, you know, major gains there um, for black people in America. And also there's like a lot of movies made about that period. Like you, you don't see people making movies about like, I don't know, boring shit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I can't even think of yeah. it because unless it's like you're the... Noah Baumbach, but um, yeah. actually, I really, I really like Noah Baumbach. I was just shots I was fired. <laughs> Not a fan of Marriage Story, I hear. Uh, I like earlier Noah Baumbach movies, but <laughs> <laughs> actually, my one friend, I just want to, my one friend Patrick Williams, he does this. He has a really good like the only good film analysis youtube channel and that he went he went to college with me in my same department so i know he's smart but he has a great very funny video that is uh what if a spider-man movie was directed by noah bombach and it is the spider-man movie i've wanted ever since i've seen that like it's so good (laughs) I just thought of like several really, really bizarre fight scenes where like no one actually hurts each other or has the yes. talent to do so. Absolutely. They're all just clumsily punching walls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not, uh, I mean, I feel like Adam Driver could throw a punch, though. He was in the military. Right? He was a Marine. Yeah, he's a pretty like, I remember seeing he's him a, on like girls. I was like, you're kind of jacked, man. I got to want to fuck He's a big boy. You. He's a very Ooh. big boy. I Yeah. I wouldn't want to fuck I with think him. <laughs> there's there, there's been think pieces on this. Think pieces. In oh square God. scare quotes. He's he's like very big for like Hollywood. Like he's six That's one. True. That's not exactly like a giant. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's taller than most actors, which yeah. I suppose is an advantage here. But I just keep remembering the scene in The Last Jedi where he takes his shirt off and it's just like a, a the broadside of a ship. <laughs> like he's such a broad person. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Um, I also wrote other articles that were not yes, about Adam Driver. Yes, you did. Adam- so, <laughs> <laughs> we're not time. about shirtless Adam Driver. It's not about shirtless Adam Driver. Yeah, uh, I, I, I love, so I love we're transitioning from shirtless Adam Driver to something way more serious. I, I also loved this story. Uh, I kind of felt like it was a bit of a hit list in a great way, like a good way. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's about which racist monuments are around America. and <laughs> You yeah, can find next? them on a map. Who's yeah. next? Um, yeah. Emmanuel pointed this out to me. My parents actually uh, donate to the Southern Poverty Law Center, but they uh, upkeep a, a user-submitted mostly map, or at least they have a form where people can update or add monuments. Say if there's a monument near you that is a Confederate monument that needs to be taken down or just that you want people to know about at all, you know? Or maybe some of them have been taken down and the map's not updated yet. It also seems like a really good idea if you visit their website and check out their Who's Heritage map. To uh, <clears throat> it, it, it shows you all the Confederate monuments that have existed in the United States. So it includes ones that have been already been taken down. Like, uh, did you know that in 1957, there was a, a bust of Stonewall Jackson in the Bronx that was put up by the United Daughters of the Confederacy? Wow. 
1957 in the Bronx. <laughs> This I wonder seems why like they, an insane I, I just, thing to do. <laughs> I wonder why they did that. I wonder why the daughters of the Confederacy put that up. In that neighborhood at that time. <laughs> yeah, it's a you real, know? like... Head scratcher. Like, head yeah. scratcher, yeah. Real shocker. But there's real a lot shocker. of statues like that that are still up that were, you know, a lot of the Confederate monuments in the United States, they were either added during the first rise of the KKK in the early 1900s, or they were added during the beginning of the civil rights movement explicitly to intimidate black people not into not protesting and fighting for their rights. Well, this is this is the interesting thing about it is like people think that they were around from like 1870 or something. It's like, no, 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 no. These came back like in, in a spat. In yeah. between certain, and also an, another thing to remember is these these uh, these monuments came back periods in which the KKK had a resurgence mm-hmm. every single time. Mm-hmm. So you had like right around World War One, right after World War One, that entire period, tons of Confederate monuments start start shooting up. Yeah. Same thing yeah. again during the civil rights movement. You can really, really see that when you look at this map because it shows you the dates that they've been dedicated, it, when they know it, and uh, who has dedicated them. And they're almost always these like groups that have made it a part of their political goals to make sure that the Confederacy remains a physical reminder in. Um, in like the American consciousness and like a lot of these statues, if you look at these maps, a lot of them are in black neighborhoods, are places where black people would see them. And there's only one reason why you would put a pick like a bust of Stonewall Jackson in a majority black neighborhood. And it's to remind people, black people, that they were once slaves. And that's it. So right now, a lot of protesters in the ongoing protest uh, against police brutality uh, in memory of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, just a list of names that keeps growing. Um, they have been removing these statues, beheading them, defacing them. And, well, it just seems like the Severn Poverty Law Center has given everyone a wonderful resource for finding the historically inaccurate statues that are in their town. And doing whatever you want like to them. do with them. And doing whatever you want to do with them. <laughs> and you know what? The other thing, too, is... Uh, I report on the far right, and these these statues are very important to to the neo Nazis, to the white power folks, because they love to take pictures with them. Yeah. <laughs> they really do, and I God. think like <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know <laughs> yeah. about why I, they need to go. <laughs> I completely agree. You know, all they are for is for in reinforcing a racial hegemony that has existed for a really long time that we are now fighting to finally upend. Hopefully, it will make some real progress. Yeah. One thing that I found, I mean, I guess I wasn't surprised by this. Like, you know, a lot of the monuments and roads and parks, etc., that are named after Confederate generals or Confederate people or KKK members or what have you are in the South and the Southeast. But then you have, like, the Confederate Memorial Fountain in Helena, Montana, and, like, all these... um all these monuments that are in things that like weren't even states during the uh, civil war and especially like Northwestern states, which I know obviously there's a history of racism that uh, pervades the entire country and and certainly wasn't limited and isn't limited to Southern states, but it's like the Confederacy, a failed fucking JV team certainly has like a, a lot more memorials than a lot of other losing squads. I must say, 
uh, well, yeah. people who, I, I in theory, ask- shouldn't have any skin in the game, like our dear friends in, I don't know, like the Canadian border in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a smattering of them in, like, rural places in California. And it's like, I know that California isn't just the coastal towns, but y'all were Mexico at that time. Mm-hmm. I also got to I got to I got to I got to be clear, too. Like Italians, I'm Italian. We got Christopher Columbus statues all over the place. Uh, I don't understand why we're so big on this guy. He was a complete genocideer <laughs> and piece of shit. He was a big time dumbass who thought he was in India and like didn't listen to anyone who was like, yo, dad, yeah. we've never heard of that place. <laughs> Yep. And like a clearly a deeply racist and troubling figure in history, and uh, you know, like his statues like are getting idea are getting it. Idea of discovering a continent where people are clearly already living is like one that's been we've been hashed that one out. I feel like we can admit that these statues don't have any place in the United States, and that the only reason why they're there is to subjugate the indigenous people who live there. Right. He has been going swimming a lot recently at the bottom of creeks, oceans ports etc which is good maybe he's he's trying to get home (laughs) i hope he finds that i saw (laughs) transatlantic one of the best tweets i've seen in in recent weeks was uh columbus gonna go into the ocean and say he discovered atlantis (laughs) (laughs) actually um our own lorenzo um lozo tweeted something so good yesterday that was just like as an Italian that was raised in Spain, I just want to say, I think Christopher Columbus is super fucking dumb. <laughs> yep. God. Yep. Yeah. I grew up in a town with a large ma- ma- Italian immigrant population. Like, the, there's a Sicilian church in our town that was an identical copy of one in Sicily. So exact that when the one in Sicily burned down, they asked for the blueprints of the one from my hometown because they were exactly the same and they that was the only way they could figure out how to rebuild it uh and yeah you know the christopher columbus shit he's not even like a part of italian culture that italians seem to care very much about like it doesn't make any sense that these statues are still here and yet and yet no it was actually the reason that they're around is because it was a way for italians to try to weave themselves into American history and stop being uh, discriminated against is really what it is. Yeah. So, th- but th- so they're like, see Christopher Columbus, we've been here since the beginning We're we have, we have a stake in this, right guys. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So then of course you have like the rise of, it, of the Italian community uh, and actual, you, you know, you had not just the mafia, but a, a rise in wealth. They were like, they created Christopher Columbus foundations and societies. And they were like, well, we're going to put these statues everywhere. So everyone knows, you know, Italians have something to do with this. The without without, of without realizing is yeah so interesting oh yeah like, i mean like it's it, like italians say like we call white people manja cakes <laughs> <laughs> and gita you've seen me before yeah i'm white yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. i remember uh, the, so the immigrant population in my my hometown it was m- majority italian with a strong polish minority and i remember just we were doing a standardized test and this guy named paul he was like yo miss because that was what we called teachers in our school. It was just, yo, mister, or yo, miss. Yo, miss, uh, what do I put down for my ethnicity on on the standardized test? And she was like, Paul, you put white. He was like, no, but I'm I'm Polish. Why would I put white? <laughs> and it's just, you really, like, understand, though, like, when you are in those environments, like, white is something that people made up. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Or, like, what's white enough? What isn't white? It, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's... I mean, it's almost as if this whole thing is really stupid. 
it's almost yeah as if it's <laughs> If you put on your Thalys sunglasses, you're just going to see it be racist when you look at these statues. It's really interesting how racism is completely illogical. Um, All right. So so this another story, final story that you did. You were on fire last few weeks. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, Headline being black people are always the side story. I'm just going to let you explain from there. Can we we shout out Waypoint Radio here because Gita is a regular participant on yes. waypoint radio uh which is our video games podcast and she's excellent on it so if you enjoy the conversation oh. that's about to follow go listen to that show as well yeah so video games are the other thing that i report on because i reported on them quite a bit when i was at kotaku a video game website um and this week there this week is supposed to be e, like the end of E3 which is video games' biggest um United States based sort of tech conference on video games and this is a particularly important year because both Microsoft and Sony have unveiled their new consoles and this was so, so Sony was having in lieu of a huge blowout presser they had a What's it called? Uh, just a, a, a lame uh, live stream. <laughs> like it's a really boring a live Zoom stream. Chat. <laughs> they basically had a Zoom chat. They did what they we're doing game- right now. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool. Honestly, it would be much cooler if they were doing what we're doing right now. Like it was it was really when you watch the Sony presser and like compare it to a Nintendo Direct, you can see how difficult it is actually to get those things together and have them be interesting and how good Nintendo is at making those things and like really like important, like short and to the point. Um, we came away, I came away from that presser not really understanding why I should buy a PS5, which is not good. I would say <laughs> the whole point of those things is to make you want to buy it. The only thing they really showed off were the games. And like, I understand I'm, I'm more excited about a console when the games are really good, but they, they start started off with um, a teaser trailer for a game called Spider-Man Miles Morales. And if you are one of the many people that saw the Oscar winning movie uh, into the Spider-Verse, you know who Miles Morales is. He's Black Spider-Man. He's um, a kid from Brooklyn who was bitten by a radioactive spider, and he is actually Spider-Man, the, the Spider-Man in most of the Marvel comics now. There are Peter Parker books still, but they have to be like labeled that they are Peter Parker books. Miles Morales is Spider-Man. The only place where he really isn't Spider-Man is in the movies, which I don't know why that would be. That's weird. It's a weird thing. <laughs> um, anyway... I was so psyched. Like, I, I, I was really psyched. I really liked Insomniac's Spider-Man game. I like Peter Parker. I like Spider-Man a lot. Other than the X-Men, I think he's my favorite, like, Marvel property. Just because, I mean, he's hashtag relatable, right? I also was a lonely, nerdy kid that wished I had superpowers in high school. So, I, I mean, I get it. I, I, like, I get why people like Peter Parker. But... Huge, huge Wolverine fan, by the way. Full disclosure. I can only remember Peter Parker as Tobey Maguire, and he was such an annoying Spider-Man to me. To- yeah. I mean, Tobey Maguire is just. Whenever I think of Tobey Maguire, I just think of Cider House Rules, and I want to blow my own fucking head off. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> God, yeah. I mean, I like those movies because I like Sam Raimi. And I think Spider-Man 2 is still one of the better superhero movies because it is very human in a way that I think most Marvel movies are not 
interested in humanity as corny as it is the sam raimi moments where he's trying to do if you mess with one of us you'll mess with all of us the moment (laughs) in spider-man 2 where he's attacked by doc ock and he goes unconscious in that subway train because he's trying to stop it and he uses all his strength up and his mask rips and then people on the subway train look at him and one of them says i have a son this age like that is not really a moment you'd get in superhero movies broadly um i I don't think i think sam raimi cares about that shit i don't think marvel as an entity disney as an entity actually does um if you want any more of my thoughts about superhero comics then uh don't ever at me on twitter.com um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i spider-man miles morales was exciting to me because i i wanted to play as miles since i saw him in the first in that Insomniac Spider-Man game. He's a character in that game. You can play as him for a section. It seemed like they were gearing up for a cycle, uh, a sequel where you're just Miles Morales. Uh, I found out my good friend Evan Narciss would be writing for it. I got even more excited. And then on the Waypoint Radio podcast, Patrick Klepek was like, so that release date seems a little soon for a full-on sequel. And I was like, oh, shit. So... <laughs> In video games, there's been this weird trend where the these large studios, what are called AAA studios, will put out uh, a version of their major franchises that stars a woman, a non-white person, bloody, like someone else other than the normal straight white male protagonist. But it'll be a shorter side story that doesn't get as big of a marketing push. And it's just like... This is the third time now that, that this has happened. In the morning when I woke up after the conference, just thinking, dreading hearing it, the first thing I saw was like, yes, Spider-Man Miles Morales is a shorter, like, standalone side story. And it's just like, black people love video games. I, like, the black people kept the PS Vita and PSP markets alive. Like, there was a period of time where you'd go... I lived uh, in Hyde Park in Chicago, and uh, in the one bus that takes you from the south side to downtown Chicago, because Chicago's a normal place, you'd always just see all these black teenagers, like, playing GTA on their PS Vita, like, every day. And I... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, like, I, it's like it's like everyone likes video games, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, black people... <laughs> every single black man I've known has played Battlefield and had an Xbox 360. Like, people mm-hmm. fucking love video games. I, I don't understand why it seems like an impossibility or a risk to have Miles Morales in a game that is the same length and scale as Insomniac's original Spider-Man game, which wasn't a very long game. It was about 30 hours. Um shorter if you are like a big time gamer but miles deserves that like they explicitly they they compared the scope of this project to something called lost legacy which uh uncharted is a very big franchise and lost legacy was like a 10 hour side game and it's like i i don't want to spend just a third of the time in miles morales's shoes i want to be that kid (laughs) Except, you know, they'll they'll still, like, pour millions and millions of dollars into, like, another epic where Assassin's Creed has some, like, historical white dude going around killing everybody. You know, this, yeah. the latest one is some Viking. Like, give me a fucking yeah, break. Yeah, I mean, and the Ass Creed really makes me bonkers because there's so many periods of, like, chemistry that would be so interesting that they just aren't going to because there's no way that, that white people could be there. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, 
everybody in the world wants Samurai Assassin's Creed. Not gonna happen though. Like, yeah, I like, would wh- lo- <laughs> like what? The and when hell? I saw when I saw that that latest Assassin's Creed uh, with uh, Vikings in it, I was just like, fucking perfect, great. I can't wait for all the neo Nazis to just like, yeah, have boners yeah. to this. They like, love that iconography. Come on, man. Yeah, like... And it's just... It's too many times for me. Like, Assassin's Creed is actually a franchise who has done this exact thing. Like, uh, Assassin's Creed 4, you did play as a non-white protagonist, but he was mixed with white, which was a clever way for these developers to still give you a white guy. Um, and no, that was 3. 3 was three was the American Revolution, the one that no one liked except my old boss, <laughs> Stephen Chatillo, for some reason loved it. 4 was the pirate one, which, again, it's great. And they had non-white characters on those pirate ships because, obviously, historically speaking, there were non-white people on pirate ships. But they also, you know, they... They had a side game starring one of those characters, a black man, a freed slave, where you went around and freed slaves. It and really that was feels, just a DLC. Yeah. And I mean, it really feels like with Miles Morales and, and with the Assassin's Creed game and, and with the Uncharted game, it's like, well, we're like trying out like having a black protagonist, like we're experimenting with it. Like we don't want to put, you know, our full budget, our full development power behind you know, a, a full sequel or a new IP, God forbid, like yeah. a brand new. Let's just let's game. just be really soft on this. Like these people of color getting getting uh, their own games. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. like wh- wh- what? It's like testing the <laughs> waters. Where it's like why? Why? I mean, why? there's no need. <laughs> like you think you said, black, black people Panther love video games. Was like so Black Panther. Popular. Like, like you know. Uh, and like, also, I would say I would say too. Like I can't speak for everyone, but I, I feel like. Nobody would give a shit. I, I, like a, m- many white people would would play those games too. Like it's not as if yeah. Like I mean, I feel like um, like look at the movie Black Panther. Many people have watched it. It's not as if I watch like superhero movies and I have to see like a white guy doing it. Yeah, like, you're yeah. hearing more I, I and more like... that people enjoyed the film Black Panther. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> everyone's it's like, saying I'm... it, but no one's talking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, I feel like by by doing this kind of thing where it's clear that they're testing the waters and seeing how it would sell, what you're doing is admitting that you think having a black protagonist is a risk. And that says a lot more about the video game industry than anything else about these games. If you think, if you're worried about pissing off a part of your consumer base by having a black man character, you're a fucking pussy. <laughs> yeah, seriously. All I gotta say. <laughs> and, and like, again, like, you really think that it's, it's, it's gonna like, destroy your sales or something i feel like it's like not gonna do that (laughs) it's like not even destroy your sales like the amount of abuse that video game developers take is on par or worse with the abuse that like video game journalists take i i have talked to video game developers that have had people dox them and find their home addresses for things as minor as um oh um uh, Seamus Blackwell, who did the Jurassic Park game Trespasser, that was universally despised because it was unfinished. He told me uh, an article I wrote about that. He he was like lead designer on that game when he was 25. So you can see why it didn't really work out. So I wanted to ask him about leading a project that big at that age and what you learned from it. Um, and he said, like, yeah, I mean, when that happened, it was early days of the Internet. But like he got death threats. He got people finding out his home address, you know, weird shit in the mail. That happens. But 
I feel like if you're afraid of that, you have a bigger fucking problem than like putting out a game with a black protagonist. It just is like decades of cowardice, just mm-hmm. decades and decades of cowardice compounding on top of each other. When we're at this point where you have to apologize for having a girl on the box or putting yep. a game out with a non-white main character. Yep. And it's 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 just I also just feel like it's a risk that they shouldn't be afraid of. You know, like it's just stupid. Yeah. It's just yeah. totally stupid. When and faced with what actual marginalized people face in the world. Yeah, exactly. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> and also, like, this kind of thing, like, representation like that is is far more important than, mm-hmm. like, than anything else. And it it's, it's also clear that when these developers make this decision, it's an indication that there are not very many people of color working in that studio, or at least <laughs> not many people of color working at that studio that are involved in the higher-level decision-making process. I feel like... Any black person that works in games knows for sure that black people are going to eat up Spider-Man Miles Morales. That's black mm-hmm. people food. <laughs> no, like, we're going to love that shit. It's in the Arizona iced tea of video games. And any if there was, like, a black person in a C-suite part of that company or in the higher levels of the game design development process high enough where they could put their foot down and be like, no, this one's a full-on sequel. We'll do a different thing for the side game. The decision would be made, but it, yep. it's not. So you know what the inside of that company looks like a little bit now. Yep. I think, that, I mean, that's, those are all extremely important because this is how these, these sorts of you know, not just in gaming. These are these sorts of generational issues with many of the industries we're all involved in continue to <laughs> persist. Yeah. yeah, I am sitting next to an award I got from AfroDev, uh, which is a like a, a sort of a black person networking. And, you know, they give awards for people, black people in game development who have contributed to the culture in some way. Um, I got their award for media in 2019. And sitting next to me uh, on this award, the coolest thing I own is a, an original cartridge from uh, Jerry Lawson, who was the inventor of the cartridge. He's a black man. Uh, we've been here since the very beginning. It just is bizarre that we are represented so poorly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a, an amazing way to end this, actually. That's a... <laughs> Well, first off, congrats. That's an awesome award. Thanks. It's it's so fucking cool. I never That's thought really I'd have one of these. That's really fucking cool, yeah. We love <laughs> really awards. Yeah. I love it. Hell yeah to awards, too. <laughs> Shout out <laughs> to, to awards, awards when we win them. Yes, yes. Hell yeah to awards when we win <laughs> when them. When we don't win <laughs> them, we don't awards. care. Uh, and sometimes don't dislike them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's. I think that's accurate. Yeah. Well, Gita, we have to have you back on again. That would uh, be super fun. This has been a very interesting and amazing and fun cipher. It has been. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Thanks and for Jason. Coming. Yes, what? Thanks for coming. Yeah, I'm always thanks here. Thanks for coming too. All right. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> right, Bye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. 
Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.